Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're starting a new year, so every everything is new. And I wanted to start with something very special, just, I think, delightful. There's so much wisdom in the Torah, and it's presented in so many different ways. And one of the very amazingly uh, creative, inventive ways that the sages present very deep information is through a transmission called Agadita. And sometimes they're very straightforward stories, and they're actually things that took place that, that were never officially written in the Chumash. But you have other forms of Agadita, that are absolutely wild, wild stories. And the sages felt like certain ideas weren't for everyone, and it's best to present them in this form. In Baba Basra, if you want to look it up, that's one of the the volumes of the Talmud, and it's on page 74b. And it's surrounded, by the way, this is like one of the middle stories. There's like this whole run of stories that are... Each one is more wild than the next, okay? And I'm going to give you the story first, and then I'm going to tell you how the Malbim, who is a very great rabbi from the late 1800s, early 1900s, interprets it, okay? So here is the Agadita from Baba Basra, page 74b. So there was... A ship, and on the ship there were some sailors, and they spotted a gemstone in the water. And they went to go for the gemstone, but the problem was this gemstone was encircled by a sea monster. And when the sea monster sees the diver coming, he lunges to swallow the entire ship. But before he can, a giant female raven comes and chops the head off the sea monster. And there's so much blood that it turns the water red. And then another sea monster comes and puts the gemstone around the head of the decapitated sea monster and it comes to life. And now it lunges for the ship to swallow the ship again. And the raven comes back and chops its head off again. And the diver is able to get this gemstone, throws it on the ship. And on the ship, there's this salted meat. It's poultry. You know, they they would salt it. It was a preservative. And one of the divers puts the gemstone to this salted meat. And the birds come back to life, and they fly off with the gemstone. And that's the end of the piece of Agadita. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's amazing, right? (laughs) So the question is, what on earth does that mean? What on earth does that mean? So I'm going to give you the interpretation of the Malbum, okay? And... We'll go through it again, and you'll see it's, it's, it's really quite jam-packed with wisdom, okay? So here we go. 
First, we have to figure out what everything stands for. And this is the special language the, the rabbis would speak in. Everything is encoded. And you can learn these codes if you want. It actually takes quite a bit of study and a number of years in order to be able to figure out what the correlations are, what everything stands for, and then how everything fits together. So the first thing we have to know is what does the boat stand for? So the boat stands for you and me. The boat is a person. And why is a boat a person? Because a boat goes on a journey. It starts in one place and it goes on a distant trek to another place. And each one of us is on a journey. All of us are starting off in one place and we're going to another place. So just along those lines, I heard Rabbi Tath say one time, he, he, he made a, a, a mushal. He said, you know, it's like a person, a, a, a lifetime is going to give a different set of imagery, but I just want to sort of communicate what it means that we're like ships going on this journey. Um, he said, imagine a person is, has to drive across country and, and, and deliver this thing, and he wants to make sure if he's driving this truck, he doesn't know how to drive a truck. He, he has to learn all these new, these new laws and regulations because driving a truck and driving a car are two different things. You got to get a separate license. Doesn't want to get a ticket or anything like that. So he learns everything and he actually is able to drive cross country all the way without getting a ticket. And he gets to the place where he's aiming to go and they say, where are the goods? And he forgot to deliver the goods. So, you know, Reb Shlomo used to say a lot of times, you can do everything right and be doing everything wrong. <laughs> he used to say that all the time. So the idea is you've got two aspects to your mission in life. As David Amelech, King David says, Sur tov. desist from bad, move away from the bad, and asetov, do the good. In other words, this person learned all the laws in terms of driving a truck and was able to successfully not do anything wrong. But what about delivering the goods? What about, what about all the gifts that God puts in every single one of us that he expects us to put in the world simultaneously? It's not just about not doing anything wrong. You also have to realize all these amazing potentials that you have within yourself. Remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have trucks or cars or anything like that. The main delivery system was by ships. So all of us are like ships. Okay, very good. The next thing we need to know is, what is the jewel? So the jewel, according to the Malbud, the Malbum, is one's intellect. The jewel is wisdom. And so in order for the ship to steer itself and to get to where it needs to go successfully, you need intellect, right? A person needs intellect, wisdom, in order to guide their path through life. So the diver sees the wisdom, sees the gemstone, and wants, wants to bring it onto the ship, wants to integrate it into his life. Now, very interestingly, 
and, and I'm adding this little piece here, but I think this is what is going on in terms of this agatha, is as the diver is going to get the gemstone, this sea monster is attacking the ship, wants to swallow the ship. So now we have to figure out what's the sea monster. Well, it's not so easy to get wisdom in life. There's a sea monster surrounding it, and that is your Yetzirah. That is your negative inclination, which wants to stop you from basically fulfilling your potential. And interestingly, there's this simultaneity that's going on, that as the diver is trying to get the gemstone, the Yetzirah is attacking. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And Rebbe Nachman of Breslov says it this way, that if a person wants to draw close to God, wants to refine themselves, wants to really tap into what is the mission of my soul in this world? What am I supposed to accomplish? That that person, when they begin their efforts in the positive direction, you ready for this? They're given a test. And that is, I think for, you know, speaking for myself anyway, for those of us growing up in America, say, I think that that's sort of counterintuitive because as I always like to say, you know, if anyone who does anything right, you know, we think that you're supposed to throw a party for us. Like that's what we expect the response to be. You know, you showed up in shul, yay, you know, celebrate that person. And yet Rabbi Nachman says something much deeper. He says, no, 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 in heaven, they say something like this. You want to draw close? Let's see. Okay, let's find out. Let's find out if it's real. How are you going to react when you confront an obstacle? Are you going to turn around and run away? Or are you going to persevere? That will be the sign if, if, you, if you're serious. So a whole another realm of what's going on, you know? So, so that's the idea. So the, the diver is also us. The diver is going for the gemstone, is going for wisdom. And at that moment, it provokes the attack of the sea monster who wants to swallow the entire ship. And as Rabbi Green told me one time, something that stayed with me, just, you know, when you hear something like this, you can't forget it. The Yetzirah actually wants to kill you. And I told that to someone recently, and he said, you mean he just wants to, like, steer you in the wrong direction, right? And I was like, that's not actually how I understood it. <laughs> no, actually kill you. Actually kill you. Okay, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's the sea monster swallowing the ship, right? Because the ship is, up, is us. All right, so now what happens next? Now we have to understand a female raven comes and chops off the head of the sea monster and blood spurts everywhere. So in Torah Hashkafa, Torah philosophy, female ravens are especially cruel. And this, I think, is a very amazing thought, which is that sometimes the way to defeat your Yetzirah your negative inclination, is actually to be cruel to it. And let me give you an example of that. 
one of the reasons why I don't exercise or haven't been exercising, one of the reasons is because it hurts my body. <laughs> After I do it, it's like, ow, I hurt. This is painful. I am not enjoying this. And yet the idea is if you keep on doing it, then you get used to it and you get past it. And, and that cruelty, so to speak, in other words, not sort of like being so solicitous to every ache and pain, but to persevere and to drive on is the way to nullify the Yetzirah. So that's the idea that certain times like, you know, you might say, well, I want to, I want to learn, but I'm so tired. Drink a cup of coffee, man. <laughs> you know, just that, that, that's what it means to be cruel to your Yates. My wife's grandfather, who, who my son is named after, by the way, uh, Moshe was a Rosh Kolel in Navardic, right? Which was one of the exalted um, yeshivas uh, of pre-World War II uh, Europe. He was one of those people who he learned 16 hours a day, Torah 16 hours a day, and kept his feet in a bucket of ice water. Right? People did this. People did this. My, my grandfather-in-law did this. And the idea was that when your feet are in a bucket of ice water, you do not go to sleep. That's just, that's just one of the things that happens when you put your feet in a bucket of ice water. So that's the idea of the raven cutting off the head of the sea monster. Okay, now this next step is also very amazing, which is another sea monster shows up and puts the gem around the neck of the first sea monster and it comes back to life. Okay, so the Malbum explains it like this, an amazing, amazing explanation that sometimes when the Yetzahara, when the negative inclination sees that it's, it's sort of like, ow, it hurts, isn't working. <laughs> so it shifts gears. And remember, the gemstone represents your intellect. So, so the gemstone is now around the head of the sea monster. The sea monster has become revived and now wants to swallow the ship again. So what is this idea? The Yetzirah will now try to use intellect. Remember, because now it's got the gemstone attached to it. It will now try to use your own intellect against you. So in this instance, the sea monster says the following. Look how bloody the water is. I mean... Haven't you gone too far? I mean, really, let's let's be serious. I mean, there, there, there are civilized ways to go about this. Don't you agree? <laughs> and don't you agree that you've crossed the boundary right now? Like, settle down, cool off a little bit. So now this is, do you see how the Yetzirah is working right now? It's not just going, I'm tired. I don't want to do it. Now it's using logic to shut you down. Your own logic against you. So, so again, I heard Rabbi Green say one time, and I, I thought this was wonderful. Uh, uh, for a lot of people, one of the difficult things 
that happens every day is that, that, that effort to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> How do you do it? How do I get out of bed in the morning? And he has a rule with himself, no conversations with yourself in bed. <laughs> because the alarm clock goes off and that reminds you of something. And what do I have to do today? And that reminds you of something. And then you've got a whole conversation with yourself in bed. And then the next thing you know, you're back asleep. <laughs> and you kind of wake up a little bit. So there's some more conversation. Whatever it is. So believe it or not, on the very first page of the Shulchan Aruch, that's the code of Jewish law, the very first page, it says, get out of bed in the morning like a lion. Like a lion. And you can have this in mind. The alarm clock goes off or your eyes open. Say to yourself, like a lion. <laughs> Spring out of bed. No conversations. So, so that's the idea. That's the idea. The raven now comes back and chops off the head of the sea monster with the gemstone. Okay? Meaning to say... That's not going to work either. No conversations in bed. That's not going to happen either. I'm just going to jump out of bed and I'm, and I'm going to do it. Okay. Now, the diver throws the gemstone onto the ship and revives these birds, right? It's, it's basically like, you know, salted chicken, you know, and... And the birds come back to life and fly away with the gemstone. So what does that mean? So this is a very, very, very interesting idea. I'm going to read it to you from the, from the Talmud right now. Eventually, the diver succeeded and took the intellect to his own ship. By, and here, here's the line. By using one's intellect to the utmost... One can revive ideas that have long been dormant in one's mind. Isn't that interesting? That's the idea that these birds are coming back to life. And then they fly off with the gemstones. The gemstone, meaning to say that, that once you're back in the game, you now have reconnected wisdom with, with the boat, meaning to say your journey in life. You have reintegrated wisdom in terms of how you're proceeding in life. And now you are going to be able to kind of like pick up where you left off in terms of your most positive thoughts, which, which you may have forgotten about. So now you're kind of back in tune with what it is you're supposed to be doing. And then I understand the idea that the birds fly off with the gemstone, that your intellect now just rises higher and higher. Like that's, that's the idea as a, as a guiding source, you know? So anyway, I thought that was a nice way to start off our, our, our year of learning, right? Because we've got to take all of this energy that we've received and now sort of like use it to guide us. And so... You know, we're all on a journey. We're all on a journey together. And so we have to do it with wisdom. And by the way, it was my birthday, actually. Shabbos Breshis.
Isn't that cool? On, on the Shabbos of creation. So I, I was very kind of excited about that, that those two things should come together. And I'll tell you something, which is many, many great rabbis have gone to these same stories and learned out very different lessons from these same stories. The Vilna Gon, if you, if you are interested and intrigued by this category of Torah study, I recommend everyone get the following book. It's called The Juggler and the King. And it's the Vilna Gon's interpretations of these wild agatitas. It's a wonderfully written book. And what's so interesting is, Rabbi Nachman, by the way, also has interpretations of these. What, what's so interesting is that they're going to tell you completely different explanations based on these same wild stories. But because they were such great tzaddikim and Talmidei Chachamim, great Torah scholars, that the story that they're telling contains perfect Torah wisdom also. They're just arriving at it through a totally different way. And I think that it would be a wonderful contribution for someone to take one of these stories and then to do the Vilna Gons, Rabbi Nachman, probably the Maharal, the Malbum, one after the other. And so you could have in one place all of the different interpretations of the same story. I think that would be a, a, a great book, a great contribution to the world. Okay, so, so now I want to just transition back to Breshis because this is absolutely just one of my favorite, favorite moments in the whole Torah. And, and it's my birthday Parsha. So I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to it. And anyone who's been listening to these talks over the years knows that I'm basically talking about Parshas Breshis all year long. So I, I can't, can't get away from it. Can't get away from it. So, so on Parshas Breshis, we have to talk about Parshas Breshis for sure. So let me just share the following with you. I'll just sum it all up in the beginning. And then we can go through the various steps of it. But I, I want you to hear the big message right from the very start. And the big message is, and I'm talking in the most macro way right now. So understand, in the most highest, exalted, mind-expansive way right now, okay? And here it is. There is no closure in life. There is no closure in life. And that's a good thing. Okay? That, that's, I'm going to explain to you what that means, okay? But there is no closure in life, and that's a good thing. Okay, so now, that probably, well, it should sound surprising to you. And the reason why it should sound surprising to you is because we love closure. We want closure. Closure is the most satisfying thing in the entire world. So why are you telling me there is no closure and that's a good thing? Like, solve that for me, please, you know? So what is closure? Let's just make sure that we're understanding each other. Closure is the sense like, we had a fight, okay? And now you apologize to me or I apologize to you and we're friends again, we're not fighting. Ah, there's closure. Okay, good. There's a million forms of this. 
Here, here, here's, here's, here's another form. If you sit down at a restaurant and you order your dinner from the waiter, you expect the food to come, don't you? <laughs> if the food doesn't come, there is no closure. That is very aggravating. It's another form of closure. How about if you text someone and they don't text you back? Well, they, uh, where's my closure? Did they get the text? I don't even know if they got the text. Do they even care? I don't know. Did they get busy? I don't know. No closure. Okay. So, so why are we talking about closure right now? And the reason why I'm talking about it is because the Torah ends, right? We're talking about the start of the Torah, but the start of the Torah is very tied to the end of the Torah. The end of the Torah ends in a very, very amazing way. Now, to appreciate this, we have to understand something. The Torah is functioning on many, many, many different levels. And one of the levels is the narrative level. Now, I have to emphasize one important point for, for you to follow what I'm saying right now. The five books, which we call the Chumash, which we call the Torah, sometimes we call the Torah all the books of the Torah, including the Talmud. Oftentimes that's what we mean when we refer to the Torah. People get confused by this. But right now, we're talking about the five books of the Torah. Now the five books of the Torah, the Chumash, right? Or, you know, some people call it the Old Testament, which is an incredibly annoying phrase because it suggests that it's old. It is not old. It is ever new and true. But these five books of the Torah are in a category all by themselves. And the reason is because they're given through Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the greatest prophet and remains the greatest prophet for all time. Remember, Mashiach will be greater in some ways, but not in prophecy. In other words, Moshe is even a greater prophet than the Messiah. So everything goes back to Moshe. Everything's got to be in accordance with the Torah according to Moshe. Otherwise, it's not true. As we say, Torah emet, the Torah is true, right? And we say, Torah Moshe. So the Torah of Moshe is the truth. And remember, the word emet is fascinating in so many different ways, but it's Aleph, Mem, Tav, the first letter of the alphabet, the middle letter of the alphabet, and the last letter of the alphabet, which means that something that's true was true from the very start and remains true to the very end. And that's the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moses. It's true forever. Okay. And he gave us the five books. God gave us the five books through him. So everything is contained within the five books. Everything. Okay. Now, with that in mind, what is the narrative? What is the storyline of the five books? And it's very straightforward, by the way. It starts with the creation of the world, the development of the Jewish people, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. But if you want to make it even simpler, 
It's about the Jewish people entering into the land of Israel. That is the story of the Torah, right? From the very beginning, God is promising Abraham, your children are going to have the land of Israel. From the very start, this is the story in the Torah. Okay, so why am I emphasizing that so much? Because there is an astounding thing that nobody talks about, which is you get to the end of the five books, and guess what? The Jewish people do not enter the land of Israel. That is amazing. Or, to use the term we've been using up until now, the five books end without any closure. No closure. And do you know why no one talks about this? Because it's, so to speak, God does this trick, so to speak, which is Moshe doesn't enter the land of Israel. And so everyone is just looking over there. Moshe didn't enter into the land of Israel. That's so terrible. Meanwhile, nobody enters into the land of Israel. Now, why is that significant? It's significant for a lot of reasons. Because it's telling us a tremendous truth about reality and about eternity. And I can sum it up this way. And I'll give you a number of examples, okay? And remember, I just want to re-emphasize this point that yes, there's no closure, but the real point is that that's a tremendous, fantastic thing. Okay, why? Because I just gave you so many examples of how no closure is an incredibly frustrating, annoying thing, even a painful thing. So why in this instance is it so positive? So I'm going to explain it to you. You see, basically, you have to understand that all of reality, as we know it, is an interface between two things. One is the infinity of God, and the other is our own finiteness. Everything relative to God is finite, because God is the ultimate infinity. So, so... The only thing infinite is God. Everything else is finite. Angels are finite relative to God. Relative to us, they they exist in another dimension and they see like quantum levels of spirituality and godliness. But angels are not God. Angels are creations of God. You think of the higher dimensions and those of you who, who know some of these sort of like more Kabbalistic things. The highest dimension is a realm called Atsilus. Atsilus is the most exalted expanse of highest spiritual dimension that is also finite relative to God. So everything is finite relative to God. Now, you want to hear something interesting? I thought that a great description for God is God is infinite. I've referred to God as infinite you know, several times already. God is the greatest infinity, right? Do you know what? The word infinity is already putting parameters on God. (laughs) You can't even call God infinite because God is beyond infinite. Can you imagine how great God is that you can't even use the word infinite to describe him because he's beyond even that? Even that's a container around him that blocks our full understanding of him. I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Yishbitzer Rebbe 
you know, you, we, we've got a very interesting commandment after we get the Torah in Parshas Yisra, after the Ten Commandments, which contain the entire Torah, are revealed at Mount Sinai. Toward the end of that Parsha, you get a commandment, which is, don't make a molten God. So what does that mean? Don't make a molten God. So a molten God means that you make a mold and you pour like whatever you pour into it, hot lead or whatever it is. And then, you know, it cools down in this mold and then you take out, take away the cast. And now you have this cast iron statue of an idol. Okay. So don't make a molten God. So I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer. You know what that means? Don't form God according to your limited expectations of him. <laughs> Don't take the infinity of God and mold him in your mind what you think God is. <laughs> because God's beyond that. He's beyond, 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 beyond. Right? And how many of us are walking around saying, God is so beyond, but meanwhile, we've got this cast mold of really who he is. Like, yeah, he's very infinite, but, you know, between you and me, if you could just see the picture inside my mind, okay, it's not in actual physical form, but he's this and not that and not this and that. And yet, what's the reality? We know we go through life, through history, constantly being surprised. Constantly being surprised in our own lives. We, we never know what's going to happen next. Because God is so beyond. That's just an aspect of his infinity. And you know, as I always like to tell you, I just think that this is one of the most important Torahs there is out there. Especially for our time and our generation. From the Katskarebi, he says, I would never worship a God I understood. Why? Because if you know everything there is to know about God, then you're also God. So then what do you need God for? So what I think is so fascinating about that, and so counterintuitive, is that one of the premises of God being God is that you do not understand him. See, people, and you know, you, you find people, they mean so well, and they're spiritual, and you know, they're trying to make that breakthrough to, to, to Torah. They're trying, they, they, they are sincerely trying, and they'll tell you from a very good place, explain it to me, because if I can't understand it, I will not do it. I will not do something that I don't understand. But can I ask you something? Did you send a text today in an email? Do you know how that works? <laughs> no, but you did it, right? Did you get into your car today? Did you take an airplane ride? Did you take some Advil today? Do you know how any of these things work? No, but you do it, right? Yeah, why? Because it works, because it's true. And you don't subject any of these things to those tests, do you? So a person has to be intellectually honest, right? But to me, it's helpful 
See, I would say there are two camps. Probably more, but let's say two for now. One camp is everything can be understood. We just haven't developed the technology or the science to be able to grasp some of these unanswered questions. We've made tremendous progress, and we will get there. It's true. There are things we do not know, but we will get there, and in time, we will develop the answers to all of the unanswered questions. We will. We'll get there. That's one camp. The other camp is, says the same thing, but adds one crucial extra point. And we will never fully understand everything. <laughs> because there is a level beyond, because we are finite and God is infinite, and there is a cap to which we're going to hit eventually. Because otherwise we're also infinite and we're also God, but, but we aren't. We're, we're emanations of God. We're manifestations of godliness. That's true because all that exists is God. So we have to be incorporated into that. And yet we have limitations because we are creations. And so as much as we'll ever know, we won't absolutely know everything. And to me, that's true wisdom. That's true wisdom. I'll tell you something unbelievable. You see, the snake tries to get us to believe that by eating from the tree, that we can join the God club. That God doesn't want us to eat from the tree because God doesn't want more rivals. If we eat from the tree, we also become God. And God doesn't want that. So, there's a word that God uses in the Garden of Eden. Vihishiani. Vihishiani can be divided up into two words. One is the word ani, and the other is yesh, which means that I have me, meaning to say I am, I am what exists. Yesh ani, what exists in this world? I exist in this world. Right? That's even deeper. Now listen to this. That, that's just the first part of this teaching. Listen to this. Something unbelievable. The letter Dalit. Dalit actually is, is not just the name of a letter. It's also a word in Hebrew. It means poor. And poor, in the sense, it can mean poor like, you know, I don't have any cash. But it can also mean poor in the sense of being humble. So there's a positive sense to it. Like, for instance, the name David, like, like David Amelech, right? King David was very amazing, right? He was a, a, a tzaddik, he was a master, master servant of God. He was a warrior, like no one could beat him on the battlefield. He was a musician. He was a poet. He was a lover. He was, 
He was amazing. He was amazing. Every area of his life, right? But he was also amazingly humble, incredibly humble. And they say his name spells that out. Dalid Vav Dalid. So Dalid, we say, means poor or humble because that's how he thought of himself. The Vav is like, if you think of the Vav from the Yudke Vavke, that's attaching this lower world all the way up to the higher worlds, right? It's this divine connection. So he starts off very humble. Then the next letter is Vav. He climbs the greatest, 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 greatest heights, but then he returns back to the Dalit, right? He remains, even after achieving these incredible heights, he remains very humble. Okay, so that's, that's the name David. And there you see Dalid meaning very humble. Okay, so let's go back to this word, the Hishiani, and let's incorporate some Dalits. So listen to this. I told you it means yesh and ani, I have. But when you incorporate the letter dalid, which stands for humility, into the word ani, it changes it into a divine name. All of a sudden, ani becomes Adonai, and that's a divine name. Now what about yesh, to have? You incorporate the Dalid, which is humility, and all of a sudden it becomes a divine name, Shaddai. That's the name on every mezuzah. That, that's an exalted divine name. So do you see what just happened? The critical element is humility. We take, I have, it's all about me, and you incorporate the letter Dalit into it, you incorporate the attribute in your own life of humility, and then all of a sudden, everything widens. It's not just about you anymore. Your mind expands, and you realize that you are a piece of this divine scheme. It's not ani yesh anymore, or yesh ani, right, which means that I have me, meaning to say, I am, I am what exists. Yesh ani, what exists in this world? I exist in this world. Right? That's even deeper. And now it's two divine names. You know what exists in this world? God exists in this world. And I'm an aspect of the divine. And now all of a sudden, everything assumes its proper balance. And now the snake can't get me, right? Because I'm seeing everything clearly. So that's this big difference. Can everything ultimately be known by me, by humanity? Or is true wisdom, this gemstone, right? Is true wisdom the understanding that everything can't be known? And my understanding that everything can't be known is actually not surrender or a lack of intelligence or a lack of ambition, but wisdom, that that is wisdom, knowing that everything can't be known. 
And, you know, that's where I want to be personally. That's where I want to be. I'll never forget, I was sitting with someone, a really good person, who was a really smart person. And I saw that that person was trying to figure out all of life and all of truth on his own. And I remember thinking, there's something wrong with this. Like, don't you, you, you have access to thousands of years of wisdom, including divine prophecy, including the truth itself, Torah and Met. And you're sitting here trying to figure it out on your own. And I, you know, and I, I love this person, but I just, I thought to myself, I'm not going to be that guy. <laughs> I'm not going to be that guy. And, and for a lot of us, that takes an act of humility. But that humility, I think, is actually wisdom. So let's go back to this idea that there is no closure. You see, what it means is, let me give you a few visuals, okay? Imagine you're standing on the beach, right? Right where the water begins to hit the sand, you know? Like the tips of your toes are getting wet with the last breath of the incoming waves. And you're looking at the skyline and you see this remarkable thing in front of you. There's this place where the sky meets the ocean, this straight line. That's called the horizon. And you go, I want to go to that place where the sky meets the ocean. So you start to swim toward it. And it moves a little further away. <laughs> and you go, oh, I know what the problem is. I'm not swimming fast enough. <laughs> so you swim faster. And that line moves a little bit further. And you go, oh, I know what the problem is. And you hop into a motorboat. <laughs> and you speed toward that line. And it moves a little further away. Do you know why? Because it's an illusion. There is no place where the sky meets the ocean like that, okay? I'll give you another visual. Imagine the XY axis, right? There's something called in math called an asymptote, which is where a curve comes and it's going to hit the, the line, right? The axis line. And it gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, and it never hits the line. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a real mathematical thing. That, that's another version of this, how the finite gets closer and closer to the infinite, but it never actually touches the infinite. That's us and God. And I'll give you... One more, one more visual of this. Each one of us is a letter in the Torah, okay? 
But there are some interesting rules about the letters in the Torah. Everybody knows that the Torah is black fire and white fire. Right? The black fire is those revealed things in the world. The white fire is those spiritual realms which are there, but they can't be seen with the eye. So everybody knows that if a letter is missing, the whole Torah scroll can't be used. It's not a kosher Torah scroll. If just one letter, if just one of us is missing, nothing works. Everyone is necessary. Or if a piece of a letter is missing, it doesn't work. All right, but here's a law that not everybody knows. What if one of the letters is touching another one of the letters? And both of the letters are complete. It's just that they're touching. Is there a problem there? And the answer is, that Torah scroll is also not kosher. But this, the reason is very surprising, very amazing. It's because you have diminished the white fire. Isn't that interesting? It's not just the black fire that has to be complete, the letters of the Torah. The white fire also has to be complete. And if two letters are touching, you have blocked out some of the white fire. So that means that every letter of the Torah, and remember, each one of us is a letter of the Torah, has to be completely surrounded by white fire. Now, this is going to get deep in a second, so listen carefully. The white fire stands for those realms that are beyond us. God, if you will, right? Or godliness. So, there are realms that we can't grasp because they're beyond us. That's the white fire that surrounds us, right? The realms that we'll never know. That's the receding horizon. That's the access point that we're never able to touch. That's the white fire that surrounds us. Those areas that we'll never be able to grasp. But now listen to this point, and this is what I'm getting to, which I, I personally find very inspiring. The idea is that that white fire, which represents God, really, is so close to us. In other words, in those moments where we don't know the answer, that is God manifesting himself in our lives so directly. Do you get it? So we think when I don't know, when I don't know, that's God hiding himself. But do you see how it's the total opposite? <laughs> when I don't know, that's the white fire surrounding me. That's the closeness of God. Because God is like embracing me with his infinity. Do you get it? Do you get it? So now... Let's, let's, let's get closure on this point about how there's no closure. <laughs> Why does the Torah, the five books, which ends, which contains everything, the five books contains everything, how, and the whole storyline of the Torah is the Jews entering into the land of Israel, how is it that the Torah ends without, without us entering into the land of Israel? And so now it should be very abundantly clear what the answer is. It's because this is a microcosm 
of our expansive divine journey within God for all eternity. We will climb levels and levels and levels and levels, infinite levels within God. And each time our revelation is going to get greater and greater and greater and greater. And it will never stop because God is infinite. And we will delight in more majestic expansiveness within God forever. And it's never going to end. And this is the greatest gift God could ever give us. It's not that you don't get what you want. It's that you never stop getting what you want. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. Okay. What follows now are some questions and answers. So, Reb Shlomo often would say you can be doing everything right and everything wrong. So, what does that mean? So, I heard this story yesterday and I loved it. There was a visiting rabbi speaking, Rabbi Blechman, and he said he was about to get married, and he had been learning in the Hebron Yeshiva for 10 years. And the mashgiach, the spiritual head of the Yeshiva, was this 85-year-old man. And before he got married, he wanted to get advice from him he said that the reason why he wanted to go out of his way to talk to this person in particular is because this 85-year-old man would walk with his 85-year-old wife down the streets of Yerushalayim arm in arm, okay? And he said it was such a beautiful sight to see this elderly couple walking down the streets of Yerushalayim arm in arm that he said, I've got to gotta learn about marriage from this guy. So he met with him and he says, you've been here 10 years. What have you been learning? And he starts to give him an answer. And then he said the following to him in Yiddish. He said to him, if you can't pour everything that you've learned from your Torah study into the cup of coffee you pour for your wife every morning, you've learned nothing. I'm going to say that again. If you can't pour everything you've learned from all that you've learned from your Torah study into the cup of coffee you pour for your wife every morning, you've learned nothing. I thought that was just awesome. That's awesome. And, and that's what it means that you can be doing everything right and everything wrong. All the wisdom that we're learning has to be making us into better people with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And if somehow it's not serving that end, then we're doing something wrong. And the thing is, is that you know, speaking as someone who, who didn't grow up observant and didn't grow up with all the Torah laws and things like that and came to it, 
you know, later, later on in life. Um, I started keeping Shabbos when I was 24. There's such a mass of information. And it's all so important. And it's so hard to learn how to prioritize all of these different things, which are things that I wasn't doing up until now, with like my normal relationships, which I hopefully want to keep, you know, healthy and, and, and maybe even take to the next level in terms of, you know, guidance. But, but there's so many things that are simultaneously in conflict. It's very, very hard to do. It really is. I heard Rabbi Simcha Weinberg say that anyone who becomes a Balchuva has to go to a psychologist. And <laughs> he sort of said it in, in an intentionally humorous way, like not that you're crazy for wanting to keep the Torah, the very opposite, but it will cause ripple effects in your life that it's probably excellent advice to be able to talk to someone who who can give you sort of like a, a balanced, experienced opinion. You know, I, I know for me, I married someone who grew up religious. And I think that that really was very, very helpful in terms of um, my life and just being able to uh, just learn how to balance all of these things. So I, I know someone once compared me and my wife, I always love this description to... Uh, this person said, you're like a helium balloon and she's holding the string. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's, that's good. That's good. That's actually... Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>